Um, you may have noticed that there have not been many new backpack tools the last few weeks. That's because we're to a part of the Bible that is solid storytelling. There's not much, you know, crafting of the story going on here. They're just slapping it in there. Um, plus, we're uh, to to the part that I told you last time that we're, we've got a couple of books of the Bible running in parallel. So we're interleaving all the story together. Um, and this particular week has lots of palace intrigue, jealousy, betrayal, murder, and that's not even counting the Lord showing up in some rather alarming ways. It, it, it is going to, for the next few weeks, it's going to read like one of Shakespeare's tragedies. When we left off last week, the fighting men of Israel were streaming to David's side. So be sure to go and read First Chronicles 11. Um, I I'm not going to go over it in class, but I don't want you to miss just the flavor of the stories of his famous fighting men. They, they even have like names. There's the three, the 30, uh, the rest of his, quote, mighty men who were renowned for their bravery and skill. They take David's every wish as a command, so much so that one time when they were camped outside of a Philistine stronghold near Bethlehem, David and David gets thirsty for some of that good Bethlehem water. The three break through enemy lines to draw water for him and bring it back. I mean, you can almost feel the testosterone here. These are young men. They're in their 20s, early 30s, and they are so enthusiastic. This is the beginning of a new thing, and they absolutely love David. And David, realizing that they've done this at the risk of their own lives, just on his whim, he refuses to drink it. It reminds me of other stories we've read where men pay for something with their lives. It's the highest cost a person can pay. And to the Lord, such a payment is holy. And David, being a man after the Lord's own heart, recognizes the risk these men took and that this water is therefore holy and he isn't going to drink it. It's also during this time that David gets it into his head that he needs to count up how many fighting men he's got. This is a terrible idea. Why? First off, taking a census has a specific meaning in Mosaic law, and it's associated with redeeming Israelites as belonging to God. As each person is counted, they pay a half a shekel atonement that goes to support the tabernacle. It's very much like um, them counting their sheep. They would have understood it as the Lord counting his sheep. Sheep would pass under the shepherd's rod one at a time um, as belonging to, to him. And so uh, it is a symbolic way of saying that their lives belong to God and are given by him. So a census is it, to them in this, in their culture and in what it means in their relationship with the Lord is very different than how we would perceive a census today. So a census for David is a terrible idea because David is supposed to be relying on the Lord as his defense. And that, as you know, is a huge big deal to God. So it shouldn't matter to David how many fighting men he's got if the Lord is defending him, right? The author of 1 Samuel attributes David ba David's bad idea um, at, to being a result of the Lord inciting David against Israel. 
while the chronicler attributes it to the impulse uh, from to an impulse of evil from Satan. Uh, so Joab and all the senior officers try to talk David out of it, but he insists. And of course, as soon as the census is complete and David has a count of the fighting men, he is conscience stricken. He, he, he snaps to what the problem is and he begs the Lord for forgiveness. The Lord gives David three choices for making atonement. Now, these are ways in which the Lord will let David experience what it is like if the Lord withdraws his protection. It's what David can expect if he does not trust the Lord to defend him. So it's, it's like my daddy used to say for, for I got punished. He, he would say, we're going to build you some brain cells, Gail. Um, so the Lord offers David three choices of experiencing the Lord withholding the protection that David has clearly become uh, got, taken from granted, that, that he's, he's taking it for granted. So the Lord says, all right, David, you can have three years of famine. You can have three months of being at the mercy of your enemies, or you can have three days of the plague. Now, David for sure doesn't want to fall into the hands of men, for men will have no mercy. So he knocks out option two right away. He sees on, the only viable choices as either three years of famine or three days of plague. Either way, people are going to die. So he chooses the shorter period of three days. So the, angel, the Lord sends an angel to stretch out his hand with the plague and 70,000 men die. Or another way to look at it that is probably closer to the truth, the Lord withdraws his protection from the plague for three days. And David pleads with the Lord, please do not let this fall on the people any longer. I am the one who sinned. Let me and my family bear the consequences. And the suffering grieves the Lord's heart too. David was right that the Lord would have mercy. And as the angel stretches his hand out towards Jerusalem, the Lord cries, stop. And the plague stops right where it is at the threshing floor of Aruna, a Jebusite living on Mount Moriah, just north of Jerusalem. David goes to the threshing floor of Aruna and purchases it and builds an altar there and makes sacrifices to the Lord. And the Lord speaks to the angel and the angel puts his sword back in its sheath. The Lord is serious about David remembering to rely on him alone. David is leading a fractured nation, a nation misled by Saul, a nation threatened on all sides by enemies. If David relies on his own strength, the entire nation will be doomed. So you'll recall that after Saul and Jonathan's deaths, his general Abner anointed Saul's son Ishbosheth king. But Abner is struggling. Ishbosheth is a weak man, and the army is hemorrhaging soldiers as men defect to join David. On top of that, Abner is torn personally. He's deeply connected to these soldiers, including David. This is one of the terrible tragedies of any civil war. When Joab's brother Asahel chased Abner last week, Abner tried to get Asahel to turn aside, but Asahel refused and Abner was forced to kill him. This is civil war at its worst. 
On top of that, things are getting more and more tense between Abner and the new king Ishbosheth. I think Abner is having to prop him up. Ishbosheth's definitely not king material. Finally, Ishbosheth accuses Abner of sleeping with one of Saul's concubines. You know from the story of Reuben sleeping with his father Jacob's concubine that this is regarded as a deliberate power play in this culture. It is a statement of usurping the power of the man who owns the concubine. So if Abner did it, then he is making himself equal to King Ishbosheth, if not above him. And if he didn't do it, then Ishbosheth is accusing him of treason unfairly. The author doesn't tell us whether Abner actually slept with the concubine or not, but either way, Abner is incensed. He is the one who made Ishbosheth king. He is the one propping up Ishbosheth's reign with his military prowess, quite literally putting his life on the line for Ishbosheth every day. And he's terribly conflicted over it all, for he knows the Lord has anointed David as the true king. Abner's in a terrible situation, and this accusation from Ishbosheth infuriates him. He does not need Ishbosheth sniping at him. So Abner resigns on the spot and tells Ishbosheth he's going over to David himself. Unfortunately, it's not quite that simple. First, Abner's got to convince David to trust him that it's not a trick. So Abner starts gathering fighting men to defect with him. He also opens negotiations with David over terms. David agrees to welcome Abner as an ally, but he's got one condition. Abner must bring David's wife, Michal, with him. You'll remember that one of the things Saul did to David was to give his wife, Michal, to another man. So David has every right to claim her. We don't know if he's doing this out of love for McCall or whether this is a strategic move. It could be a political move to remind the tribe of Benjamin, Saul's tribe, that David is allied to them by marriage. They are the last and biggest holdout, and David needs to convince them to unite under his kingship. Well, Abner agrees to David's terms, so David sends a messenger to Ishbosheth, formally demanding that he return Michal to him. Ishbosheth knows he's in deep trouble now and that he has no hope of standing against both Abner and David. He's basically a lamed up king and he knows it. So he immediately sends for Michal and gives her to Abner to deliver to David. Michal's husband is brokenhearted and tags along after them weeping until Abner finally sends him away, poor guy. Abner then meets with the elders of Israel and the men of Saul's tribe of Benjamin and gathers as many as he can to go with him to David's capital in Hebron. When they arrive in Hebron, David throws a great feast in celebration. After the feast, Abner petitions David to let him return to Israel to convince more soldiers to join him, and David sends him on his way with his blessing. Now, David's commander-in-chief is Joab, and Joab and his men have been away doing raids while all this was happening. When Joab arrives back in Hebron and finds out David has welcomed Abner as an ally, he's furious. 
Why did you do this, David? You can't trust Abner. He only came to spy out our strength and our movements. But David disagrees. He believes Abner is is sincere, which we know is the truth. Not convinced, Joab secretly sends men to pursue Abner. They bring Abner back to Hebron on some ruse or other, probably telling him David wants to talk to him again. Joab meets the men at the city gate. He taps Abner on the shoulder and asks him to step aside for a quick private conversation. When Abner steps into the nearby doorway, Joab and his brother Abishai stab him in revenge for killing their brother Asahel. Now, this was a terrible thing to do. Abner is innocent. He had killed Asahel in battle and had even tried to avoid killing him. It makes me wonder if part of Joab's motivation for this assassination was that with Abner in the mix, David would have had two potential commanders in chief. Did Joab perhaps see Abner as a threat to his own personal position? See what I mean about Shakespearean tragedy? David is immensely saddened by Abner's death, but he's also furious. Not only has Joab destroyed a tremendous and experienced ally who could have helped unify the kingdom, but suspicion's going to immediately fall on David. People will think that David secretly ordered the assassination. What a mess. David must take immediate and very public action to reassure people who are considering allying themselves with them that it's safe to do so. He curses Joab and his household publicly with what the scholar Robert Alter calls a first-class curse, (laughs) where he calls on the Lord to make sure the blood guilt for Abner's murder falls on Joab and his house, and that the house of Joab will always have someone whose private part leaks, and someone who has running sores on his skin, and someone who is not self-sufficient but relies on women's work, and someone who goes hungry and someone who falls by the sword. Yikes, that is indeed a first-class curse. Then David conducts a state funeral for Abner and forces Joab to walk in front as the chief mourner while David himself walks beside the bier. And afterwards, David fasts all day long as a sign of the respect in which he holds Abner. Well, when Ishbosheth hears of Abner's assassination, he trembles in fear, as well he should. What's to stop David from killing him too? But David is not the threat he should be worried about. Nope, it's two of his own military leaders who sneak into his bedroom and murder him in his bed. They cut off his head and take it as a tribute to David in Hebron. Now that sounds like the whole scenario with Amalekite and Saul, right? David didn't react well then, and he doesn't react well now. David is horrified that these assassins would dare to murder Saul's son, and he sentences them to immediate death. His men execute them on the spot, cut off their hands and feet, and hang their bodies by the pool of Hebron. Then they take the head of Ishbosheth and bury it honorably. That's a lot of body parts flying around a graphic reminder of the barbarity and the violence of this culture, 
All this is the norm for them. Never forget the context in which the, op the Lord is operating here. We are reading ancient texts. These particular events are happening around 1000 BCE in the middle of the Iron Age. After Ishbosheth's assassination, the elders of Israel come to Hebron and crown David king over all of Israel. Remember that up to now, he's only been king over the tribe of Judah, but there really is no other candidate now. All of Saul's sons are dead, and Jonathan only had one very young son. He's named Mephibosheth, and he's been crippled from the day the news of Saul's death reached the palace, and his nanny accidentally dropped him while carrying him to safety. Being lame automatically disqualifies Mephibosheth for kingship in this culture. So David it is. David will ultimately seek Mephibosheth out. And rather than killing him as is customary for sons of a rival king, David will instead welcome Mephibosheth into his court and will care for him all of his life. Yet another instance of David being a man after God's own heart. David is only 30 years old when he becomes king over all of Israel. That's a lot of adventure to pack into your teens and 20s. Not long after being made king, David attacks Jerusalem and takes it away from the Jebusites. Israel had tried to do this for years, as you know, but David finally accomplishes it and moves his capital from Hebron to Jerusalem. And forever afterwards, Jerusalem is known as the city of David. In a twist of fate, David declares that whoever successfully leads the attack on Jerusalem will become his new commander in chief. Ironically, the man who leads the attack is none other than Joab. And David makes good on his word. And that's how Joab officially becomes David's commander in chief, despite having been cursed by David. While in Jerusalem, David marries more wives and has more children. At least one of these marriages is strategic, arranged to consolidate, consolidate allies as the surrounding nations begin to choose sides. One such wife is the daughter of a king from across the Jordan River in the land of Geshur. She bears a son whom they name Absalom. He's doubly royal, King David's son and the son of a princess. He grows up believing he is the rightful heir to David's throne. We'll need to keep an eye on Absalom. The Philistines are alarmed, of course, that David now has a great fortified city and is uniting the surrounding kingdoms. They conduct a series of raids, but they are repeatedly pushed back by David. David says, the Lord has broken out against my enemies. That phrase, broken out, foreshadows what happens later in the story. But for now, when the Lord, quote, breaks out against the Philistines, they drop their idols and flee. But they try again. They come back. This time, when David asks the Lord if he should go to fight the Philistines, the Lord says no. He tells David to circle around behind the Philistine lines and wait until he hears the sound of an army marching in the treetops. That will be the signal that the Lord is marching forth in battle. David is to follow along behind as the Lord strikes the Philistines. 
What a contrast David's sense of the Lord's presence is to that of Saul's. How different it is to truly trust the Lord, to only move if the Lord says yes, and to stand and wait if the Lord says no. This is what it means to be a person after God's own heart. This is how Jesus was too. Jesus said, to tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees the father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son does also. Jesus was a man after God's own heart too. After this, even faraway nations recognize David as king over Israel, and they send gifts, and David builds a grand palace in Jerusalem. Then he decides it's time to bring the ark to Jerusalem from where it's been in Kiriath-Jerim all this time. For the last several hundred years, we've only seen the ark as it's carried into battle. It doesn't seem to figure much at all into national worship, does it? Remember that when God gave the law to Moses, he specified that the ark reside in an inner room within the tabernacle, a special two-room tent with a large courtyard. This ark is the very throne of God here on earth, the place where the glory of God dwells. God is literally present in his full holiness among the people. And because God desires this closeness with his people, he gave them elaborate plans for the tent and the courtyard and the priests to keep the people from accidentally getting too close and being consumed by his holiness, for our human bodies cannot withstand the full holiness of God. And this ark, deep in the inner sanctum of the tabernacle, is called the mercy seat, for here is where God sits. Here is where justice dwells. Here is where everything is set right. This inner sanctum is never to be entered except once each year by the high priest. And even then, he has to obscure his vision by clouds of incense, lest he look too closely upon the ark. Well, due to a series of unfortunate events back in class 33, the ark got separated from the tabernacle. The ark is in Kiriath Jerem, and the tabernacle, the big tent, is in Gibeon. But sacrifices are done in all sorts of places. Saul had priests in Nob, near his home, hometown of Gebeah. Samuel did sacrifices in Ramah. Abiathar, David's priest, does sacrifices wherever David needs them. The whole thing is in shambles. And when David decides to bring the ark to Jerusalem, he makes no plans to bring the tabernacle. He just builds a new tent for the ark. I wonder what the Lord thinks of this. And on top of that, David doesn't consult the priests or the Levites. He goes to his military commanders and has them come up with a plan for transferring the ark to to its new tent in Jerusalem. I mean, none of this sounds like a good idea to me. I I wonder what David was thinking. It almost feels like he has like this standing staff meeting with his military commanders, and this was an agenda item. Dot, bring the ark back to Jerusalem. And there's another big piece missing, a huge glaring omission. 
David never consults the Lord about this. It's like it never crosses his mind. He's king. He's doing something he clearly sees as good and worthy and honoring of the Lord. So he doesn't stop to ask the Lord about it. How often do we ourselves do things we think are good and worthy and honoring of the Lord without stopping and asking the Lord if this is what's important to him right now? Well, David gathers the military leaders and all the people, and they all troop down to kiriath Jerem to get the ark. They load it onto a new cart and head out. Two men, Ahio and Uzzah, are stationed as guards, Ahio in the front and Uzzah at the side. David and the people sing and rejoice. Everything's going along just fine until the oxen stumble, the cart starts to tip, the ark starts to fall off the cart, and Uzzah reaches out his hand to steady it. And the Lord breaks out against Uzzah, and he is killed instantly. The word used in 2 Samuel's version is the word for fierce anger, literally the flaring of the nostrils. But the word used in the chronicler's version of the story is the word for break out that was used earlier. I think the chronicler's version makes the most sense. I think in this context, it is the holiness of the Lord that breaks out. I think there is an overwhelming sudden burst of power that overwhelms poor Uzzah. And in the sudden silence and horror, David's anger bursts out against the Lord. Why did you do this? How can I bring your ark close to any of us? Why, Lord? And so David leaves the ark at the nearby home of a Levite named Obedidom. It takes David himself three months to think this all through and realize what went wrong. During those three months, the Lord greatly blesses the household of Obedidom, where the ark has been left. Finally, after three months, David organizes a new effort to gather the ark and bring it to its new home in Jerusalem. This time, he consults the priests and the Levites and has them carry the ark on its carrying poles on their shoulders, as the Lord had prescribed long ago. At this time, there are two main priests in Israel, Abiathar, who's been traveling around with David ever since Saul killed Abiathar's family when they gave David help, and a young warrior named Sadok, who is the priest in charge of the sacrifices at the tabernacle in Gibeon. And yes, you heard that right. Zadok is a warrior priest. That is very unusual. The priests and the Levites are exempt from normal military service because they didn't get a portion of the land in the promised land, remember? Instead, they are all devoted to the Lord in place of the firstborn of Israel, and their service in the tabernacle counts as their military service. It's hardly, they're hardly warriors. But even though the tribe of Levi is exempt, there are places where scripture refers to all 12 tribes going into battle. So scholars look at that and say, well, that must mean the Levites go too. And then they sort of jump through hoops to differentiate different types of wars, saying, well, the Levites were excluded from wars over land, but included in wars where Israel was on the defensive. I think this is a misreading of the situation. I think a better interpretation is that the phrase all 12 tribes is not 
tribe specific. Remember that since the tribe of Joseph split into the twin tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, there are actually 13 tribes. And in scripture, we find that a different 12 are listed at different times. It's not at all unusual for the 12 tribes to include Ephraim and Manasseh and exclude Levi. So just because it says all 12 tribes went into battle, it doesn't necessarily mean that Levites went too. We know that priests like Abiathar accompanied the rulers on campaigns and were used to consult the Lord. And we know the Levites would often carry the ark when the Israelites went into battle. But these aren't fighting positions. For a priest to be called a warrior seems very unusual. Zadok's name literally means righteous, which makes sense for a priest. And it also literally means just, which also makes sense because justice or setting things right is exactly what the Lord is doing in all these wars. This warrior priest, Zadok, and his descendants will become a very big deal in the future. So whenever you run across his name, pay attention. So David consults the priests of Beathar and Zadok, and things go much better this time. The bearers safely carry the ark. The people shout. The Levites sing the Psalms David writes for the occasion, and David dances before the Lord with all his might, whirling and leaping and turning and shouting for joy before the Lord. His wife, McCall, is mortified. I don't think she takes the Lord God seriously at all. Remember, she's the one with the household idols, and she doesn't even bother to go with David and all the people to get the ark. She watches the whole spectacle from her window in the palace. She's such a complex character in these stories, and she's furious at the fool David is making of himself in front of the people. There's even a suggestion that in his frantic dancing, he exposes himself for all to see. There's no sense that he does it on purpose, merely that the simple priestly linen robes he's wearing are not exactly made for leaping and twirling. Well, when McCall sees this, she despises David in her heart. And when David finally arrives home to the palace after a full day of celebration and sacrifices and giving gifts to the people, McCall meets him at the door and gives him a piece of her mind. Dripping with sarcasm, she says, my, my, how the king has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in front of the servant girls like a shameless fool. Oh, my gosh. David draws himself up and says, I was dancing before the Lord, and I will continue to dance before the Lord. I will become even more undignified. In fact, I will utterly humiliate myself before the Lord who has chosen me to be ruler over his people. Oh, oh yes. And those servant girls, they will not despise me for it. They will honor me for it. And from that day forward, McCall has no children. We don't know whether it's the Lord's doing or whether David refuses to go into her ever again. I suspect it's both. After all this, the young warrior priest Zadok returns to Gibeon, where he continues to minister at the tabernacle, making sacrifices, while the ark itself remains in Jerusalem in the tent David set up for it. 
It doesn't take long, however, for David to begin to feel uncomfortable that he's luxuriating in a brand new palace while the Lord is hunkered down in a tent nearby. So he decides to build a temple for the Lord. This time, he remembers to consult his court prophet, a man named Nathan. Um, I'm pretty sure that word means a gift um, in, in Hebrew. He's aptly named. So Nathan says, sounds good to me. Go for it. But that night, the Lord comes to Nathan and says, did I ever say I was unhappy in my tent? I love dwelling where my people are and moving when they move. Tell David, I took you from the pasture and from caring for the flock and made you ruler over Israel. I have been by your side always, and now I make you this promise. I will build you a house. I will make a home for my people Israel and plant them there in safety. And when your days as ruler are over, I will raise up one of your offspring to succeed you. I will establish his kingdom and his throne forever. And he will be the one who will build a house for me. Now, this is talking about Solomon, David's son, who does eventually build the Lord a temple. The Lord says that when Solomon messes up, the Lord will punish him with the rod of men, not a rod of iron, but the rod of men. I think that's a way of saying the Lord will let Solomon suffer the natural consequences of his choices. This seems to be the consistent way the Lord disciplines, not by smiting us, but by withdrawing the hedge of protection he has already placed around us and letting us get whatever it is we insisted on. But even when he messes up, the Lord says, I will never take my chesed from him as I took it away from Saul. Some translations put the word love in here for chesed, but chesed is a much broader concept than what we typically think of as love. Probably our closest parallel concept is God's grace, as it encompasses love in an active sort of way. Chesed is most often translated as goodness, loving kindness, faithfulness, and mercy. But even these words fall short, so translators often add another word, steadfast. Chesed is steadfast love, devotion, love with staying power. It's almost as if the word is describing God's very essence in all its aspects. And it certainly incorporates the concept of action. It is the active, loving presence of God. We don't need to worry about God taking his chesed away from us, but we do have to be concerned with the consequences if we willfully choose a path of self-glory rather than God-glory, a path in which we bask in God's chesed and follow him in it everywhere is very different than the path Saul chose, which was a path of reliance on self, glorification of self, concern over self which ultimately led to death, as that path always does. But even so, I think God loved Saul to the very end and mourned over his choices. When Nathan tells David what the Lord said, David goes to the Lord alone and sits before him. Overwhelmed and in utter humility, David says, Who am I 
that you would bless me so. You know me, and yet you still bless me. Beyond measure, there is no one like you, Lord. May every word of your great promise come true, and may my house last forever. Be sure to turn your um, mics back on, and we will go into our breakout rooms. See you in about 15 minutes. Welcome back. Welcome back. I hope you had enough time. Never. <laughs> I know, right? You know, we didn't give, even get to question three. So that, that's okay. They're just starter <laughs> points. You know, as long as you're talking, that's the main thing. Um, it doesn't even matter to me what it is you picked to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever hits, whatever, whatever bubbles up from your heart as a result of this, you know? So, um, the, but the, what I was trying to get at here was in the concept of chesed, there is a, the idea of a very active, living, interactive God. That, that God surrounds us. We saw that all over the lesson today, that, that God has us already surrounded with a hedge of love. Mm-hmm. And that we become so accustomed to it that we take it for granted. Um, and, and that we, we become blind to how God interacts in our life. And uh, that if we do truly believe that God is good, that God is trustworthy, that we can believe that God is actually caring for us, and that we can, if we believe that there, that God wants a relationship for us, that God still talks to us, and we can talk to God, then that begs the question. How exactly does that work? <laughs> what does that look like? Um, and that's where I was going with these questions because I think in our minds we have this dichotomy in our in our understanding of how God relates to people, and we have this idea of how God related to people in the Bible as being different than how God relates to us now. And I wanted to think about that some. So. I'm open to whatever, wherever you all went with the conversation, what, what stuck out to you and what, what did you think about? We were going to a church when we were uh, very involved with their marriage program. And one of the things that the, one of the speakers said to us, God, it really struck out is God speaks to us through his people, through his word and through his spirit. And it's not necessarily in any order. And it's not necessarily in, in any emphasis, but that's typically how he does it. His word, his people, and his spirit. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. So I'll start the conversation with that little platitude. <laughs> yeah, I, I, um, I had shared that there, I have been in, in some churches where they basically discount that third part of of listening to the spirit and look you know listening to inside what what you are sensing 
is the direction God wants you to take because our own, you know, sinful, sinful natures will always lead us astray and you can't trust them. Um, but I have found, you know, yes, I consult with wise friends. I, I consult with people that I trust that I know also are attuned to the voice of God, but I listen to what is going on inside and, and sort of keep this two-way conversation going, you know, am I going in the right direction? You know, it's not steer me elsewhere. Um, but I do trust my gut. Mm -hmm. Well, I get out my Ouija board. Oh, Ross. (laughs) Hey, so Ross. uh, We discussed certainly the spirit. Um, and if you, if you, yeah, if you already discount the spirit up front, uh, it may not be as uh, Im- impactful as you would want it to be. So mm-hmm. as Gail, as you said before, sometimes you have to get really quiet. And sometimes it's just a, a feeling of peace. If, you, yeah. if, you're, if you're struggling over something, you finally make the decision, you know, what you think God wants you to do you feel like a piece and sometimes then you don't, you feel like, uh, I got to think of it some more. So that's kind of how I look for affirmation from God is I feel a a sense of peace. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. The Lord just hit me in the forehead with a two by four. And I have to share this with you. (laughs) (laughs) I can't believe I plugged this together. I didn't plug this together till just now. Oh my gosh. So we're having, y'all are, are like off in your breakout rooms and I can't see you or hear you. Well, just at the reason I was having trouble with the, the slide at the very end there and getting it, you know, all getting y'all into your breakout rooms was because my phone was ringing. I had left my phone in the other room and normally I have it with me and I have it on silent and I just had not done any of that. My, so I've got an Apple watch. And so it was ringing in my ear and I was trying to do all this all at once. And I got y'all all off into your rooms. And, and I noticed that the call was from someone whose husband is just out of the hospital and I have been doing some pastoral care for her, for them um, in the past week. And um and so I, I, while y'all were doing your thing, I ran off in the other room to call her back to see if there was something wrong, you know. And she said, well, Gail, I just wanted to, to talk to you about the shepherds meeting this past week. Um, it was just like two days, day before yesterday or yesterday. It was just real recent. And shepherds is what we call the, bo- is the board in my little church that I go to. Mm-hmm. And I think I had shared with you that, um, that our pastor of 17 years, the founding pastor of this church is retiring in May. And we, mm. you know, and so they've been looking for some, you know, what to do. And I've been guiding them through a discernment process um, over this whole time. And we are to the point of getting ready to hire some worship leader, a worship leader, interim kind of people over the summer. And so, as I was um, working this all out and getting the frameworks set up and kind of shepherding the congregation in how to go through this process without having like an end in sight, just, you know, we need to do this this way so that we are listening to the Lord. 
um, it, it, as I was beginning to reach out to these potential worship leaders um, this week, I was, I was realizing that, you know, we are not asking them to do pastoral care. We are not asking them to do admin in the church. We are not asking them to actually be pastor. We're asking them to do, bring the message each Sunday, you know, to design the worship. And, um, and as kind of a, an interim way of getting to know each other, you know, we get to know them, they get to know us, and then we can figure out if, you know, we want to continue a relationship or not, or, and they can discern about us, us the same way. So anyway, I'm, I'm the one who has been um, having these conversations with these candidates over the last week. And I began to realize based on some of their questions that we needed an interim pastor. You know, we needed somebody they would report to, somebody that would be their point person. And our staff has nobody, you know. And um, and so at the at the shepherds meeting this past um, this week, I I brought that up to them, and and I told them, I you know, I said I am really uncomfortable saying this, but. I think I've been functioning as your interim pastor for a while now. <laughs> and, and maybe I should just like do this for this transition period until we find who our next pastor will be. And as I was speaking, because I had already taken my name out of the hat, you know, I had already told them they had, they had said, you know, are you interested in being our senior pastor? And I said, no, you know, I've got Shelby and I've got other things, you know, I, I, I can't right now. Um, but as I spoke the words to bring this up and to offer myself as interim pastor, one of the other women who was this woman that was on the phone was on the call and she started jumping up and down and raising her hands and saying, I came to this meeting prepared to make that suggestion because we need you and you've already been doing this job. And, and she was calling me, she held up a, an envelope. She had scribbled her, her thoughts on, on the back of it. She said, see, I already had it written all out. And, and, and she was calling me just now in this lesson wow. to tell me, I wanted you to know the whole story. And I wanted you to know that I feel very strongly that you're in exactly the place the Lord has put you. You're doing exactly what the Lord wants you to do. And that you bringing it up in that meeting, she said, I, I meant to call you before the meeting and talk to you about it. And I didn't. And having you say, bring it up in the meeting was confirmation to me that I was hearing the Lord. Whereas I felt like the complete other way around, like I was like scared to death bringing this up. And having her hold up her envelope with it already written on it, you know, was confirmation to me. And I, and the Lord orchestrated this whole conversation to happen while you all are talking about this. <laughs> That's awesome. Wow. That's awesome. We have a live lesson. <laughs> That's fabulous. Wow. Yeah. Wonderful. Wow. So I, I love think, that because, I, because you really do get that sense that, okay, yeah. This mm -hmm. is this is right. I'm 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 hearing correctly. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting how because we're so different, we have different. Well, the Lord uses different ways to get our attention. Yeah. So what works for you, Gail, may not work for any of the, any of the rest of us because we don't have that same posturing as you do. But that doesn't nullify what happened to you, and it doesn't uh, limit what God can do with us. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 
So Gladys, I guess you need to check your cell phone because your technology was acting up too. <laughs> I'll, I will, uh, I'll check it later. It may be. So I think that one of the things that, that this is bringing up is that, that we will get to crossroads in our lives where decisions mm -hmm. are difficult and seem obscure. Yes. And we're, and God, in my experience, does not show us the end goal. I think God is, and I've said this a zillion times already, I think God is very much about the process, about trusting him along the way and letting him figure out where we're going and being mm -hmm. able to trust him without having the assurance that it's all going to turn out the way we want it to turn out. We have the assurance it's all going to turn out well. <laughs> But we don't have the, the assurance that it's going to turn out the way we want it, you know? Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. I've, I've, I've kind of often compared that to, you know, we used to have a roadmap when we would travel and you yeah. could see point A and point B and how you were going to get there. Right. And it seems like God more often than not is like a GPS. <laughs> Go to the next corner and turn right. Mm -hmm. Yes. That's a fabulous. Yes. That's Fabulous example. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I shared. And, and what something. happens when you get the dreaded recalculating? <laughs> <laughs> and you have to stay and wait for further directions. Right, like exactly. Pull over on the side of the road. Oh, yes. <laughs> that was me yesterday. That was me yesterday trying to chase blue bonnets and Ennis and missing yeah, all the turns. Yeah. But, Gail, I, I shared. And so, Ross, I'm, I'm going to, you know, tandem on your Ouija board because mine's going to sound far fetched. But I've said this before to people. Um, I, I felt growing up a lot of times that God spoke to me in music in the church, right? But I believe God speaks to me through the radio because there have been very pivotal times in my life when I'm not even paying attention to the radio and something comes through it. I've even had to pull over. I'm like, oh my gosh. And, and it's... Yeah. And, and not, and not always religious songs. It's, it's, it's crazy. I made this major career decision. The principal said, why don't you come on in? Let's talk about something during the summers, like three days before school starts. And I noticed I was driving along. My thoughts were, you know, racing like crazy and I'm very ADHD. So I can't do that because I run stop signs when I'm going crazy or talking while I drive. So I said, well, turn up the radio. And what's on the radio? Cheryl Crow's A Change Will Do You Good. <laughs> okay, so I know that sounds funny, but two more times, and, and, and both of them were big life things. Like one of them was when it came on, that I decided I had to leave teaching and it was a whole, things were tanking terribly, but it led me much later to be able to take care of my mother until she died. And that song was pivotal. And I know it sounds stupid, but then sometimes when I'm listening to the religious music, it hits me. And it's generally when I'm not paying attention that it hits me out of the blue. Hits me you know, out of the blue. I think that, um, that very often, God, 
well, there will be choices in front of us that um, it really doesn't matter to God which way we're going to go. Because I like agree. Ross, because like Ross says, he'll recalculate. <laughs> you know, um, God's going to get us there no matter what, and God's going to walk with us. And there's like this really big range um, of life that is yes. perfectly okay with God. You know, um, and and that we should feel free to live life and make choices and not agonize over them. You know, and I'm terrible. I suffer from decision per- analysis paralysis greatly. But I do believe in these two later times where it's turned and they have been very spiritual turns that that first one was put in there to kind of make me wake me up. I don't know. But I dated a guy who told me that he was praying over his choice of cars to buy. He had it narrowed down to two. And I literally was like, I don't think that's what we're supposed to pray about. And so I think that's what you're saying is that sometimes there's life decisions. God gave us a brain, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I, I think praying about anything is fine. I think God loves to hear the little details of our lives, just like a mother likes to hear the little details of her children's lives. But, but I also think God would be fine with either car, you know, <laughs> but, <laughs> right. um, but, praying for a decision. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Yeah. And people will drive themselves nuts doing that. And so yeah. very often what, what I will, say to somebody is, you know what? Think about these two decisions and pick the one that feels most life-giving to you. And then as you move forward, look for the way marks. And the way marks are the people, the signs, the things like this phone call I just got, you know, that confirm that, yes, you're on the right path. It's like having GPS, but then looking up and seeing the sign for the city and saying, (laughs) (laughs) so, so it's, um, I think God is very active and very involved and very loving and very tolerant of us, you know? Um, I, I don't think we need to be afraid at all. Right. One of the things that we were talking about in our group, you know, with the, the Hesed, um, context of, of God's love is the three of us in our group all have kids who are LGBTQ and, and that has taken our lives on a path that is different from, you know, first, what we had envisioned you know, earlier in their lives. And second has put us at odds frequently with, with church people. Um, But in each of our cases, God has brought people into our lives who specifically needed someone like us who had accepted our children and has blessed us and allowed us to be a blessing Mm -hmm. because of the fact that we have the choices we made when our children came out to us, which was to love, embrace, you know, maybe I don't understand it, but I'm, you know, this is my child, I'm choosing my child. And, and God confirms to us that we're headed in the right direction by bringing other people into our lives who also need that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's good. You all have, 
all been brought into my life and I consider you a great blessing. So <laughs> I want to send you off with that blessing and, and uh, say, we'll see you next week. Thank you. Bye. 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 Thank you. Bye. 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 Bye.